Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. So today, everyone, we are going to explore the four fundamental principles of non-duality, the four foundational ideas that hold up the profound and subtle philosophical school of Indian philosophy known as Advaita Vedanta, non-duality. These four principles that we are going to be talking about today, or these four distinct ideas, are really the foundation for a relaxing into renunciation kind of thing. So the four ideas, if you but grasp them on an intellectual level, that alone is sufficient in opening you up to the possibility of living your life in a new way. That is, the mere intellectual understanding of these four ideas can create in you a profound sense of relaxation and spaciousness. You see, renunciation is perhaps not what you think. Um, renunciation is not necessarily a practice. You know, renunciation is a recognition of a fact. Now, this is the beauty and subtlety of Advaita Vedanta. The philosophy of Hindu non-duality is not here to give you some kind of dogma or belief. It's not here to hand out a bowl in which you must put your thighs so you can win some favor in the afterlife. It's not even here to show you how to get better. You know, it's not a philosophy that encourages um, growth or healing, not at all. It's a philosophy that is merely aimed at getting you to realize or recognize what's already true in this moment, what's already a fact in your life. And the startling claim of Hindu non-duality or Advaita Vedanta is enlightenment is your very nature. It is what you are. It's not something you can have in the future. It's not something you necessarily need to work to. It's not something you need to heal up for or grow into. It's already the case. In fact, enlightenment is a simple recognition of what's already here. It's a fact. Now, all of the ideas I will present to you today are ancient ideas, and they're all designed to awaken you to what is already the case. Welcome, Song. I'm so happy you're here. You know, and the the insight here is as follows. Anything that has a start time will have an end time. Do you notice this? Anything that comes into existence is subject to going out of existence. This is clearly the case with everything in your life so far. You know, every relationship, every material possession, every fleeting pleasure or joy, everything that started had to end. You know, and you might now take stock of all the things in your life uh, and make no mistake, eventually all of them too will in one way or another leave you. Isn't that a startling revelation? It's a revelation that perhaps a lot of us don't like to look at. The impermanence and transiency of the world is deeply troubling. Um, but worse than facing that fact is living in denial of it, you know. Um, there's something far worse than looking old age sickness and death in the eye. And that is living a life with the head in the dirt, ignoring that those things are there. Um, and if we live in this way, when our loved ones do eventually leave us, 
um, when our body does eventually decay, uh, it will be a source of tremendous grief. It would be unconscionable. So Advaita Vedanta says, take a look at that now itself. Now, given that everything that starts must end, what is the value of enlightenment, salvation, or heavenly rewards that have a start date somewhere in the future? You see, Advaita Vedanta does not deny that there are perhaps heavenly enjoyments. You know, it does not deny that perhaps at the end of the body, the soul might go on to enjoy supernal realms of celestial bliss. It doesn't at all deny that. It simply questions the value of that. You see, Advaita Vedanta says any enlightenment or salvation that is a function of time is subject to end. You know, so if you're waiting to be saved, if salvation is something that will happen later down the road, um, then it's the kind of thing that starts. And if it's the kind of thing that starts, then it must be the kind of thing that ends. What use do we have for such a thing? Advaitins um, feel a sense of, I'm not so impressed with your heavens. You know, instead, we point you to something else, something that's already the case now, yesterday and tomorrow, the enlightenment that is already your essential nature. And so all of today's conversation will simply be various approaches into realizing that, you know, so there will be circumambulations around one central fact. The best way to interact with this material is just to relax. You know, maintain that open and spacious quality you discovered in today's opening meditation. Interact with these arguments openly, spaciously, but above all, subject them to the most rigorous scrutiny. That is, do not take any of these ideas on faith. In other words, don't accept them on a level of dogma or mere belief. Everything that is spoken of tonight must be challenged and tested in the crucible of reason. Now, the beauty of Advaita Vedanta is it's also a very philosophically rigorous school, up to the task of answering any questions about it. That's the exciting thing. So after the lecture, we'll open the floor for um, an evening of questions and answers. And as we go through the lecture, if any questions should arise, you might note them down or put them in the chat or save them for the end of the lecture. All right. So that's where we're going, the four principles of non-duality. Before I uncover the four principles for you, a quick note on on why we're doing this, why it is that we've all come together to discuss these four principles. Now, as you know, uh, the Indian seers of ancient India um, were first and foremost curious about the natural world. You know, so the beginnings of Indian philosophy was an honest inquiry into what the natural forces of the world are. The early Indian philosopher was interested in understanding and eventually, ultimately, mastering the various forces of the external world. However, we soon tired of that. You know, far more interesting than understanding the external world was understanding the inner world. You know, far more interesting than understanding the how of existence was the why of existence. This was the question that captured the imagination of all the earliest Indian philosophers. So as early as 4000 BCE, Indian philosophy made a sharp pivot. It turned away from a mere material or, um, let's say, reductionist understanding of the world, and it turned towards a more inward-seeking kind of philosophy, a philosophy aimed at the psychological realm, a subjective sort of philosophy that was looking to concretize the principles whereby a person might live meaningfully, happily, uh, a person might 
come to enjoy a life of purpose and dignity. That was the concern of Indian philosophy. Now, after millennia, literal millennia, of philosophizing, practicing, and experimenting, this is the ultimate essence of Indian philosophy. The ultimate insight, or the very kernel of Indian philosophy, is renunciation. Renunciation is the highest ideal of India. All the paths of Indian philosophy, Jnana Yoga, Karma Yoga, Raja Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, Buddhism, Jainism, um, any flavor of South Asian spirituality, even East Asian spiritualities like Taoism and Zen Buddhism, all of them are designed to cultivate in you renunciation. Renunciation is the beginning and end of all spiritual life. Renunciation is the ideal par excellence. And we could wax lyrical about renunciation all night because that truly is the gem of Indian society. Renunciation and service, the twin pillars upon which our entire civilization is built. So today, I want to talk a little bit about that renunciation. What is it to be non-attached or rather unattached? In other words, is there a difference between the word unattached and detached? You know, is there a nuance between non-attachment and a kind of numb cowardice? Uh, you know, um, a lot of times non-attachment is confused as an unwillingness to participate in the world, as a fear of the intensity of life, a shirking away from heartbreak and, and disease and old age. And often this kind of cowardice is paraded around as the renunciation of the ancient Indians. Not so. Today, we'd like to clarify a bit what we mean by that word renunciation. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, renunciation is not really a practice. You see, it's not something you need to work up towards. Eerily, it's already a fact. <laughs> it's already true of your life. And if you but realize this, it would totally change how life felt. It would totally change the quality of each of your encounters with life. It would introduce a spaciousness and a relaxation most conducive to creativity, most conducive to compassion, and most importantly, most conducive to meaning, to joy. So the reason we talk about renunciation is because we are convinced to the very core of our being that renunciation is the ultimate key to happiness, that there can be no lasting fulfillment in this world without a proper recognition and cultivation of renunciation. So the four principles of non-duality that I'll introduce you to today are principles of renunciation too. To understand them is to understand renunciation. Now, earlier today, I posted something on my Instagram story. I posted, um, um, you know, what was it? If you are at a rally fighting for your freedom, then you have already lost it. Anger is the ultimate form of bondage. And, and someone got back to me and asked, is that, is that categorical? I, do you mean all forms of protest? And uh, I felt like she had completely missed the point. I was not protesting protests at all. I was merely pointing out the trappings of anger and righteousness. Um, and that alerted me to the fact that sometimes it's easy to forget the plane or subtlety upon which Indian philosophy is done. We're not really talking about action, you see. It's not about what you do. It's about what you're thinking and feeling as you do what you do. In other words, everything is permissible except anger and righteousness. As long as there is a feeling of joy, calm, spaciousness, and renunciation, everything is permissible. Protest as much as you want to protest. You might even violently disrupt ineffectual systems. However, um, let there be no anger in your heart, you see. 
Arjuna is all torn up about the fact that he has to go and fight his cousins and teachers and his friends. He is horrified by the prospect of having to meet in battle and potentially kill those he loves. You know, and he's saying to Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, I just don't think I'm up to it, man. You know, um, and he makes this clever argument about renunciation. Why should I go and fight for my dreams? Isn't it vain to live a life aligned to the highest ideals? Um, you know, I mean, what use is it winning a war? What use is it securing a kingdom? What use is it uh, defending dharma or world order? I mean, isn't it better to retreat to a cave? And, you know, Arjuna, in so many words, is expressing spiritual bypassing. You know, and Krishna says to him, renounce, renounce and then act, you see, because it's not about the action. Again, karma in the West is sometimes seen as more associated to the outcomes of the action, but nothing could be further from the truth. When we speak of karma, we're talking about intent more than anything. We're talking about the thinking and feeling that is going on in your inner realm behind the action, not necessarily the action itself. So you see, uh, in Matthew, the Christ points out the exact same principle. He says to his disciples, He whosoever looketh upon a woman, a woman has already co co uh, committed adultery. So he's saying it's not about the act, you know. It's not about actually sleeping with someone who isn't your wife. It's more about thinking, thinking thoughts. You see, spirituality is an internal game. It's about what goes on inside you. It's not really what goes on externally. That means when we talk about renunciation today, don't think you need to change anything about your life, externally speaking. There's nothing you might need to do. You might just go on doing the same thing that you've always done day in, day out. You might stay in the same job. You might fulfill the same duties. However, the way in which you go about all of that, that will be radically altered. So make no mistake, I hope that today's lecture will be nothing short of transformative. God willing, by the end of this lecture, we would have made renunciance of all of you. Not to say that you will all now up and leave to the Himalayas and sit in a cave and put on orange robes. What is that but a show of renunciation? But this is to say that hopefully at the end of the lecture, the why of your how would have changed. Yes? Okay. So having made that disclaimer, the subtlety of Indian philosophy is it's about subtle interior experiences. Let's start. Let's look at the four principles of non-duality. They are as follows. First and foremost, upadi. Secondly, um, sakshi. Thirdly, adishtana. And fourthly, viverta. So these are all um, technical terms that we will slowly unpack together. The first is perhaps the most exciting, perhaps the most important, upadi. Now, upadhi is a rather difficult word to translate into English. Um, I've seen some translations that call it accidental identity or limited adjunct or uh, my favorite, incidental adjunct. Um, and, you know, that, that doesn't really say very much. So what do we mean when we say upadhi? Now, the best way to describe upadhi is the phenomenon whereby you take yourself to be something other than what you truly are. So upadi is a moment of false identification. That's what an upadi is. It's mistaking the reflection in the lake for your actual face. You know, it's like looking into a mirror and noticing that you're in a fun house and being incredibly distressed by the reflection that you see in the curvy, wavy mirror. You know, sometimes you go into the fun house at the... Uh, um, fair or the carnival and there are mirrors that kind of grow you sideways 
Imagine if you went into such a mirror and you got shorter and wider and you began to cry because you didn't want to be shorter or wider. Imagine if you went into such a such a place and you got stretched out like that character from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and then you began to cry because you didn't want to be a stretched out piece of taffy. I mean, that would be inane, right? To walk into a funhouse mirror kind of thing and, and be freaked out by the reflections. Someone next to you would say, don't cry. They are only reflections. You're mistaking yourself to be other than what you are. You are the one casting the reflection. You are not the reflection. Therefore, a fluctuation in the mirror has nothing to do with you, actually. It doesn't touch you. And as soon as the mirror is taken away, um, the false reflection of a wide, stretched, you know, whatever it is, that goes away too. Now, the traditional example we give in our tradition of the upadhi is the phenomenon of the transparent crystal and the colored flower. So this is a popular metaphor from Sankhya, a school of Indian philosophy that emerged around uh, 5th or 6th century BCE. And in Sankhya, the following illustration is given. Now imagine you had a clear crystal, a beautiful, pristine, see-through, transparent gem. And then I gave you a flower, like a Chinese primrose or something, something bright and colored, like a red flower. Um, and if you held the crystal in front of the flower, even if the crystal and flower aren't touching, it might appear to you that the crystal is a ruby. The crystal might appear to be red, you see. Now the question is, is the crystal red? You know, is the crystal the flower? No, the crystal isn't even touching the flower. The crystal is categorically different from the flower. They are two entirely separate realities, two entirely separate things. However, um, in one accident of perception, you have confused one for the other. By placing the crystal in front of the flower, the red flower came to give its redness to the crystal, and you assumed that it was a red crystal you were holding. Hi, Anisha. Hi, Daniel. Welcome, welcome. The four principles of non-duality, cultivating renunciation. That's what today is about. Yes. I love it. Hola, Cesar. Welcome. Now, um, why is this a mistake? So the reason the crystal appeared red is because of proximity. Now, if I had the crystal in one room and I had the flower in the other, you wouldn't mistake the clear, transparent crystal as a ruby. Uh, because there's no proximity there. There's no way that the red flower can come to pawn off its redness to the crystal. It's only when I bring the two of them together, you see. You notice the problem arises when they are in proximity to one another. When the flower and the crystal are near one another, then the crystal looks red. Then the crystal takes on the properties of the flower. Another technical word you might be excited to learn, and by the way, if the Sanskrit is going over your head, don't worry about it. We have many different levels here, and some of you are interested in this stuff on a scholastic level, and I'd like to provide some more technical terms too. Please feel free to ask me to spell anything out in the chat if you'd like. Um, but the technical term for this is Adhyaropa. Adhyaropa means superimposition. Uh, it means to project, to add on to something what was not there. You see, so the redness in the crystal is a textbook example of Adhyaropa, superimposition, or better yet, Upadhi, incidental adjunct. You know? Okay, yes. Adhya Ropa. I'll spell it for you. Ad Adhya Ropa. 
Adhyaropa, and the term here that we're exploring is Upadhi, which means incidental adjunct or accidental attribution, or maybe we could say um, false identification. Of course, I'm translating very loosely here, but by now I feel like we can all kind of agree as to what Upadhi feels like, the flavor of Upadhi. It's the funhouse mirror effect, if you will. So, the Upadhi that Advaita Vedanta wants to point out is the incidental adjunct of awareness with the things that awareness is aware of. Now, the body and the mind are objects of awareness. But by proximity, awareness like the jewel comes to mistake itself for the redness of the body and the mind. You know, so you think yourself to be a physical being. This is an upadhi. The only reason you think you are a body, the only reason you have bought into the delusion, make no mistake, we call it a delusion, of physicality is because of a proximity error, not sin. There's no punishment here. There's no original sin or anything like that. It's a mere intellectual error. It's a failure to recognize what is the case in exchange for perhaps um, just a very innocent misunderstanding of the crystal. So the body, when it comes into proximity with awareness, is much like the rose or the um, red flower that comes into proximity with the white crystal. The crystal takes on the property of the flower. Similarly, awareness takes on the property of the body. Now, it's even trickier with the mind. The psychological entity that most of ourselves take ourselves to be is another upadhi. You know, so we actually say there are three upadhis. Technically speaking, the three upadhis or the three knots that keep you trapped are A, the stula sharira, meaning the physical body upadhi, the belief that you are um, a physical thing. Yes, Puja, great question. Great question. And you'll see why in a moment. The second uh, knot or the second upadhi after stula sharira, and I'll write stula sharira in the chat, stula sharira, physical body. The problem with typing Sanskrit in the chat is Zoom autocorrects everything, so we get some very funny words. Okay, stula sharira, physical body. Then there is the sukshma, sukshma sharira, which is subtle body. Now, notice the physical body and the subtle body are two very different things. Now, modern science tries uh, a lot to reduce the subtle body to the physical body. We say subtle body, we mean thoughts and emotions, you know, your internal subjective experiences, your dreams, uh, your imagination. All of these are subtle experiences. You can't touch a thought, see? You can't touch an emotion. Even though thoughts and emotions sometimes have physical correspondences like tightness in the body or tears, ultimately the essence of a thought cannot be grasped. It cannot be touched. And modern science is interested in reducing a thought or an emotion to um, a function of the brain. So we look at firings in nerves and synapses. Uh, we look at magnetic, um, you know, MRI diagrams of the brain. And we try to link electrical and chemical events in the brain to thoughts and emotions. But there's a bit of a gap there, you know. So there's some very sophisticated science around how the electrical impulse happens. Some very sophisticated understanding of the brain as an organ. But as to how the brain produces a thought, as to how a subtle thing as an emotion appears, that science is completely in the dark with regards to modern neuroscience. It's, it's something that scientists are calling the hard problem of consciousness, which is a very exciting 
regarding Google. Um, there's a great paper out by Thomas Nagel, who is a philosopher of mind at, I believe, Columbia. Um, and his paper is called, What's It Like to Be a Bat? You know, and it's an inquiry into whether or not in 50 or 100 years, science can actually address why this disjunct between the brain and the mind occurs. So there's a thing, it's called promissory materialism, you know, and promissory materialism is, uh, yes, wonderful, Cesar. Promissory materialism is the belief that while science cannot answer how a thought happens today, give us 50 years to 100 years. We'll be able to answer you then. You know, while none of our current instruments can detect a subtle phenomenon like a thought now, um, in a few years, we might have even more precise, more subtle instruments, and maybe in a couple of years, we'll be able to identify a thought, you know, in a test tube or something. This is called promissory materialism, and Thomas Nagel makes a very acute point in his paper arguing as to why this sort of thing cannot happen, you know, and it's called a category error. You can't subject the subject to object categories. It's a rather technical philosophical paper, but for those of you who are interested, you might go and check it out. That's a kind of aside. Uh, enough to say in this lecture that the subtle body and the physical body are seen by the ancient Indian philosophers as distinct bodies. And they are both upadis. They are both accidental identifications. You identify with your physicality, but you also identify with your psychology, and both are mistakes. You see, now the third body, the third upadi, which is a little subtler, is known as the karana sharira. Kind of hard to speak of this um, in the West because there aren't really very many models for what a karana sharira is. Um, those of you who have studied Jewish mysticism might maybe kind of see a link between the karana sharira and the briathic zelem of the Jewish mystics. But for now, let's just define it as causal body. It's like the uh, blueprint of your psychological and physical being. It's where your seeds of, of, of karma is stored, so to speak. It's like the, uh, what do you call it? The software of a computer that allows the apps to run. So you might consider the karana sharira, the code, the sukshma sharira, the apps, and the stula sharira, the actual hardware. You are not your computers. You are not your gadgets. Yet, it is nubhadhi, to think that you are, you see. So that's perhaps a good model to understand the three upadis. The physical body is the hardware, um, the subtle body is the software, and the uh, karana sharira, or the causal body, is the code that creates that software, and ultimately also the hardware. Okay, I see where this analogy falls short, because I, I recognize the code only creates the software, not the hardware. Hmm. Okay, my bad. <laughs> There's only so far you can take these analogies, huh? Okay, it's the kind of computer where the code writes this, the hardware too. But okay, that's our... Yes, let me double click that. <laughs> okay. Yes, quantum computer, exactly. Self-coding AI, if you will. Yeah, 3D. Yeah, okay, thank you. You've saved it. 3D printing, yes. <laughs> I like this very modern Upadi analogy. You know, you've got the software and it gets the, the 3D printer to create this body. It's exactly like that. RJ asks, can you give me an example of the causal body? Quite difficult to do, but it's the body that you inhabit when you are in deep sleep. So you might think when you're in your waking world, you're predominantly a physical body. Do you notice that? In your waking world, it's physicality that is the dominant experience. It's touch, smell, taste. Um, and the subtle experiences you have usually organize themselves around physical stimuli. Have you noticed that? The 
waking world is predominantly a physical experience. Now, when you go to sleep, don't you notice you forget all about your uh, physical body? You actually um, completely are numb to it, you know, and you enter into the subtle body. Now, dreaming is distinctly a subtle body kind of experience. When you dream, it's not so much that you're tasting, smelling, hearing. Do you notice the sensations of a dream are more psychological? They're more mental. They're more emotional, if you will. Dreams are an entirely different order of existence than physicality. You see? So that's sukshma sharira. Dreams are predominantly sukshma sharira. Now, how can I tell you about the karana sharira when most of us aren't really there in deep sleep? I mean, we are, but uh, we don't. It's too elusive, you know, to really describe what deep sleep feels like. It feels like nothing. In fact, the definition of deep sleep is the absence of all objects of experience. So how now can I describe to you as an object the objectless void of deep sleep? You see, we come into a little bit of a um, confusing territory when we try to describe the karana sharira. But maybe, RJ, suffice to say that it's the deep sleep body. So if you see these three upadhis in terms of the three states of consciousness, the physical body inheres in waking state, the uh, dream body or the sukshma sharira, of course, exists also in the waking state, but it's predominant in the deep, deep dream state. Um, the karana sharira is, of course, present both in the dream and in the waking, but is predominant in the deep sleeping, you see. So the subtle inheres in the gross. Now, if you took a rock, two rocks couldn't occupy the same space at the same time. But two fragrances can, to borrow a phrase from Kabir Helminski. See, if I take a rock and I pour water, the water will go into the cracks of the rock. The air goes into the gaps in the atoms of the water. And sound moves through the air. So you see, the rock... The water, the air, the sound, they're all on different levels of reality. And different levels of reality can interpenetrate one another. It's a rather technical and subtle idea, but a pretty exciting one. Though, a bit of a tangent. So for today's lecture, all that matters is that there are three upadhis. Uh, and most importantly, they are all upadhis. Meaning, all three of them are convincing depictions of what you are, but they aren't at all what you are. And you taking yourself to be any of those three is a mistake, is an upadhi. It's an innocent error that results as a consequence of proximity. When awareness comes near a body, it thinks it's a body. When awareness comes near a subtle body, it thinks it's a subtle body. And awareness, when it comes near a deep sleep or causal body, it takes itself to be that. It takes itself to be the void. You see. Now, Advaita Vedanta makes a very special point in distinguishing the awareness and the things that awareness is aware of. So let's try to prove that you are not a body. You know, let's try to prove that the body is indeed an upadhi. Uh, and then we'll try to prove that the subtle body is also an upadhi. And then we'll try to prove that the deep sleep body is also an upadhi. So essentially what we're trying to do now is give you an experience, not a concept. You see, so when I go on to make these arguments for you, um, yes, you will have to understand them first and foremost on an intellectual level, but I hope that you can go a little further and identify them on a perceptual level. So for these arguments to work, they must point out something to you in the immediacy of your own experience. In other words, they're only true if you can see how they are true for you. You see, so the more questions you ask in this process, the better, uh, because the mind really needs to grok 
how this stuff is already a fact. You see, it's not, it's not like you're trying to take the mind out of its natural shape. You're simply observing this present moment and noticing what's actually there. I think it was Hegel or maybe Heidegger who described two types of metaphysics. One was a descriptive metaphysics and one was, I think he called it a, I forget, he gave another name for it, but one is, oh, revolutionary. So one is a descriptive metaphysics and one is a revolutionary metaphysics. A descriptive metaphysics tries to describe things just as they are. A revolutionary metaphysics totally upturns our vision of reality and presents in a new way of looking at things. This is both. You know, it revolutionizes your immediate encounters with life. Okay, so here's the first argument, and uh, it's quite a subtle one, but very penetrating. And the argument is as follows. You've heard it before. In order to notice change, in order to be aware that change is happening, you must be standing outside of the change. If you were a particle of water in a river, you wouldn't know that the river was flowing. It is only from the vantage point of the river bank that you can meaningfully say the river is floating, uh, flowing. Sorry. Now, this is easy to demonstrate. Right now, do you perceive the world turning? Do you perceive the world orbiting the sun? No, because you are, quote unquote, in the world. You see, your body is in the world. So the change of the world is not perceptible to you. However, if we were to take Elon Musk's spaceship and go out to Mars and it's by now terraformed perhaps and we're hanging out in some rich people's club out there and we looked through the telescope and we looked at Earth, then it would be obvious to us. The Earth was turning on its axis, 23 degrees and all that, and we would see it moving. So you see, it's only when you step out of the change that you notice the change. The very fact that you are noticing change in something implies that you are not in it. You are outside of it, behind it, so to speak, apart from it, you know? Now, this is easy to demonstrate in Newtonian mechanics as well. According to Sir Isaac Newton, the laws of physics in a uniform moving train is the same as the, um, you know, the uh, laws of physics on the train platform, you know. And so it's equally true to say the train is stationary and the world is moving around it as it is true to say the platform and the world is stationary and it is the train that's moving. This, of course, produces ideas of relativity later on. What's moving? The train or the platform? Well, that's a matter of speaking, right? Relative to the train, the platform is moving. Relative to the platform, the train is moving. But it's only from the vantage point of the other that we can notice change. In other words, Einstein is only able to intelligibly talk about the changing matrix of time and space by referring to a constant. You need a constant in order to make sense of change. And notice, light is not time, light is not space. Space and time organize themselves around light in Einstein physics. Now, uh, Mad says something very beautiful, which is, when I watch the stars go by, the trees at night, it's almost alarming how fast they flow by. Yes, exactly. And so from the point of view of the earth, it's the stars that are moving. But um, regardless what's moving, hopefully now it's quite clear to all of us that in order to notice that something is changing, in order to notice that something is moving at all, we must be apart from it. We must be in a place of relatively less change. That is, we must be in a place of relatively more static inertia than that thing to intelligibly say that thing is changing or that thing is moving, right? Um, so far, so good. This is the principle that we will use to sever your relationship to the body, mind, and causal body. 
You know, so make sure you truly grok this point. Because once you understand it, once you grasp that to perceive change is to be apart from change, it should be immediately obvious to you. Like lightning, you should realize that you are not the body, nor are you the mind, nor are you even the causal body. Welcome, Abby. I'm so happy that you're here. Um, the four principles of non-duality today. We're talking about upadhi, incidental adjunct now. So here's how it works. The world is changing. You notice this. So you know you are not the world. You know, you look at the world like, ah, I'm, I know I'm not the busy street outside. I'm the one watching the cars go by. You know, I know I'm not the flowing river. I'm the one sitting on the bank watching the river flow by. And, you know, Brock, it requires inferences. Exactly. So here's the inference I'm going to make for you now. So it's true. You need to be on something other than the change in order to make that inference. So you might be able to infer that the world is moving, but it requires you to notice movement in the stars. You cannot notice that movement in the stars unless you are from a plane of relative less movement. You see? So um, if you were like unable to refer to something other, you wouldn't be able to make an inference, you see. There must be some other, some separate thing to base your inferences off of, you see. Yes. And notice how these arguments appeal to your immediate intuitions. Now, the earliest civilizations had geocentric models. It, you know, geocentric models it just expressed an intuition that people had about the world moving around them. And that intuition, of course, became more and more sophisticated, and people were able to infer um, that it was the earth that was moving. However, right now, um, search your feelings, Luke. You know it to be true. I mean, ultimately, a lot of the arguments end like that. Right now, you don't feel the world to be moving. You know, you feel yourself to be stationary. But if you were outside, if you were standing on Mars and looking at the world, you would clearly perceive the world to be moving. That's all the argument is trying to say. Now, notice the body. Is it not a flux, a constantly shifting um, kaleidoscope of change? The very fact that you notice the body aging shows you that you must be standing somewhere apart from the body. You must be from some relatively less changing vantage point in order to adequately make the statement, the body is changing. And it's not even about making the statement. It's about noticing. It's about perceiving the change of the body. If you were the body, you would not perceive the body changing. You must be something other than the body to intelligibly notice the body changing. And the fact that the body changes is something that we resist, but it is obvious, no? You were a baby, a wee little lad, you know, a wee little lass, a wee little person, and then you became an adolescent, and then you were a young adult, and then you noticed perhaps the first gray hairs or um, smile lines or wrinkles of, of early old age. And then one day you'll notice that the posture has become a little more crooked or the muscles don't have the vigor and strength they once had. All of this has changed. However, um, you are aware of it. You see, being aware of the change is enough to notice that you are not the changing thing. You see, you are on the platform. You're not on the train. The body is the train. You are the platform. Notice how the body is not you. 
And Emily says, what if you happen to be a particle in the water and a drop splashes out and sees the water moving and drops back in? That's essentially what should happen in this lecture, Emily. So essentially, this lecture should take you out of the river. And when you go back into the river, your experience of being out of the river should change your experience of being in the river. You see, um, my goal here is to give you a glimpse of what you are not so you can be aware of it. And uh, you can rest in what you are. One glimpse is enough. You know, Advaita Vedanta is like a trick image. You know those images where when you look at it, they say, oh, here's an image of a sailboat. And you can't quite see it. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. You know that? <laughs> once the intellect truly sees what it is we're pointing at, you can't unsee it. The river will be perpetually different. It's like waking up from the matrix. You're allowed to go back into the matrix. Only now you know it's the matrix. Don't you think that's going to change entirely your experience of the matrix? Um, your experience of the river is radically transformed by your visitation of the riverbank. That's what these lectures are. They're visitations to the riverbank, if you will. Okay, so you cannot be the body because you are the one noticing the body changing. Now, the mind changes even more quickly. The mind is the psychological realm of emotions and thoughts. Notice that you change your mind just like that. The Katy Perry joke we like to make, the rather sexist statement, but rather Advaitic. You change your mind like a girl changes clothes because you're hot and you're cold. You're yes and you're no. You're in and you're out. You're up and you're down. You're wrong when it's right. You're black when it's white. We fight, we break, you know, like, that was a beautiful depiction of duality because what is the mind if not a constantly vacillating thing moving from one extreme to another? I love you, I hate you. She loves me, she loves me not. I love chocolate, I hate chocolate. I want to be, you know, a, a trial lawyer. I want to be an engineer. Now I want to be a jazz trumpeter. I hate being a musician. I want to be a professional. You see, the mind is always restless moving from one idea to the next. The emotions are always restless moving from one feeling to another. Notice how fragile happiness can be. You know, we're excited at Disneyland and then our kid says something hurtful and mean and now we're upset at Disneyland. <laughs> we were crying and then our partner brought us our favorite meal and now everything's better. Emotions are changing so quickly. Thoughts are changing so quickly. That means because you notice this change, you must be something other than the mind. And what is a personality other than a conglomeration of thoughts in the mind? So your psychological being is confined to the mind. It's a function of the subtle body. So if you can recognize now that you are not the mind by virtue of being able to observe the mind in its changes, you're able to move away or at least realize that what you took to be you, the nishness, the psychological personality known as nish, that's not me. You see, that's no more me than the body was me. All of that, um, is a changing flux and I am not it, I am the, the awareness that is aware of it. So the motto of Advaita Vedanta is, realize what you are not and relax into what you are. You are, Or in other words, be aware of what you are not. Because ultimately, what you are aware of, you are not. Do you notice this? What you are aware of is the object. You are the subject. You are the awareness in that subject-object relationship. So the very fact that you can be aware of the body, that you can be aware of the mind, means you are not the body, nor are you the mind. You are the one who is aware of those two things, you see. And so too with the um, karana sharira.
The karana sharira is something you can be aware of in deep states of meditation. So when you're in nirvikalpa samadhi, that might be equated to a waking deep sleep experience. You know how we have lucid dreaming? Most of us are working on lucid waking, but there is also such a thing as lucid deep sleeping. It's called meditation. <laughs> and uh, some people, when they meditate, they feel void. They feel the absence of all things and they ascribe to that identity. They say, I am the void. I am the nothing. But Advaita Vedanta wants to make this point, and this perhaps delineates it from traditional or classical Buddhism. The point that Advaita Vedanta makes is void. Emptiness is something you experience. It's something you are aware of. Therefore, you must be the one who is aware. Do you see? Very technical, very subtle, but so much for the upadhis. So an upadhi is anything that you mistake yourself to be by virtue of awareness coming into proximity with it, you see. So when the jewel comes near the flower, the jewel appears red. When awareness comes near the body, it takes itself to be the body. And as such, it freaks out when the body is in pain. It thinks itself to be in pain. You see, when you get a cut, there is pain in the body, but we make a statement, I am in pain. No, you are not the body, so pain in the body is not pain in you. But as long as you take yourself to be the body, then yes, certainly, pain in the body is pain in you. However, if you but remember this teaching in times of physical pain, you might notice a spaciousness opening up between you and the pain. That is, if the next time you feel pain, you resisted saying, I am in pain, you resisted identifying with the body, you resisted the upadhi, you might perceive a kind of spaciousness that allows you to endure the pain a little more. Maybe Westerfer will tell us his surgery story. It's my favorite. Um, yes, and so the idea is pain doesn't have to be suffering. There's that age-old adage, um, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. The two arrows of the Buddha, you know. Buddha says, I cannot remove the first arrow, but I can remove the second. Now the Buddha is saying, your life is like being shot by two arrows successively. The first arrow is old age, sickness, and death. These things happen to the body. However, they need not happen to you. The second arrow is your identification with the old age, sickness, and death. You say, I am sick. I am old. I am dying. That's what uh, the Buddha says, I can save you from. I can remove the second arrow. You need not... Um, suffer, although you might certainly feel pain. Now, the next time you feel something in the mind, like grief or remorse or um, boredom or resentment, whatever your mood might be, maybe you're energetic and fresh, maybe you're tired and glum, maybe you feel um, proud of yourself after being praised, maybe you feel shamed after being blamed, all of that happens in the psychological realm. Ultimately, we're saying, don't be too invested in that. There's nothing you will learn from it. It's not you. You see how this is a challenge to Western psychoanalysis? You know, it's saying you can go and pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to a therapist for hours and hours and hours of self-analysis. And you might come away with a 40-page dossier detailing everything your father said to you that resulted in you feeling this way today. Um, but ultimately, it will say nothing about you. It says a lot about the psychology, a lot about the mind, but not anything about you, for you are not your psychology. Now, are you familiar with the, um, uh, what is it, the Course of Miracles? You know, there's a powerful book, a Christian mystical text known as a Course of Miracles or Course in Miracles. Hey, Zach, what's up, bud? Good to see you a second time. Earlier, we were talking about the illusion of time. Here we are. So, yes, thank you, Westerberg. 
So um, you see, in Course of Miracles, there is a series of exercises, about 365 of them, meant to guide you into a true, genuine, mystical experience. And one of the exercises is, they're meditations, and one of the exercises is, um, I am not upset for the reason I think I am upset. Do you notice? This is a truth of Freudian and Jungian psychology. What you say you're upset about is not really what you're upset about. You might have the example of a father who is very angry when something spills in the kitchen and he starts to shout and make a fuss. Is he mad about the thing that spilled in the kitchen? Any Freudian or any Jungian will tell you, no, he's probably mad about something else, like a loss of control, like no longer playing a central role in his children's lives, not being able to guide and protect his children who have outgrown that sort of guidance, you know? And so the thing that spilled in the kitchen is perhaps a feeling of inadequacy. I need to be their mother and I'm not being able to be their mother. I, I, I need to maintain some level of control in the kitchen. I'm not able to do that. Um, for the, the, the jar falling on the floor uh, is a painful reminder of one's own insecurity around inadequacy, you see. Now, of course, the person will say, I'm upset about the mess in the kitchen. But what they mean is I'm upset about um, not having enough control of my family. Are they really mad about not having control of their family? No, they're mad about a feeling of inadequacy they might have experienced as a child. Are they really mad about a feeling of inadequacy? No, they are mad about their fear of death, a primordial fear that we all have upon incarnating. You see, so this experiment, this exercise from the Course of Miracles is profound. I am not mad for the reason I think I am mad. Then if you do that, the next exercise is more beautiful. It says, I can never know the reason why am I, I am mad. <laughs> and therefore, I will stop psychoanalyzing. I will stop this vain, glorious fixation on my psychology. Look, you cannot cultivate strength by marinating yourself in weakness. You cannot obsessively dwell upon your weaknesses and expect to one day wake up strong. You cannot, you cannot obsessively look at the mind without reifying its problems. That's what Advaita Vedanta says. Seize your attachment to your psychology. There is nothing in there that can help you because it's not you, you see. So Advaita Vedanta says you can live your whole life trying to create a powerful, healthy, beautiful body. You can spend your whole life trying to heal and grow the mind in wisdom and knowledge. None of that will help you because neither the body nor the mind are you, are ultimately you. You are the one who is aware of those two things. You see? Now, that's how the teaching helps us with the upadis. As long as there is an upadi, as long as we take ourselves to be the body and the mind, there is necessarily suffering. We make I am statements like I am sad, I am happy, I am in pain, you know. Um, yes, absolutely, Puja, absolutely. Those, and, and not just that. I think there is a virtue to studying psychology because it allows one to see themselves objectively. So if you can objectify the mind, so much the better. In other words, if you can see the mind as impersonal, it's just the mind, then your study of psychology will be very fruitful, you know? But if you are busy every day psychoanalyzing, rewriting the DSM-5 in order to give yourself new labels and new conditions, then you have fallen into the trap of thinking yourself to actually be a psychological being. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying the mind has BPD. <laughs> you see what I mean? There's nothing wrong with these labels. Like maybe the DSM-5 has a role to play. Maybe there are um, psycho psychotherapeutic models that are very helpful for the mind. Sure, to each thing its place. Oh yes, Red, we'll probably still be here. You see, to each thing the place. There are cures for the body. 
take the medicine, take the vaccine, you know, whatever it is, that's for the body, right? Let the body take what it needs. Feed the body. Don't think you are the body though. You know, you see why yogis don't make a big deal about the vaccine because it's, I don't see myself as the body. Whether you give it to me or don't, it's no big deal. So you might as well give it to me. Whatever, you know, it's the body. It's not me. I question the spirituality of anybody who is at a rally screaming about a change in the body on the basis of their personal liberty. They have confused their person with the body. The liberty of the body is incidental. It's got nothing to do with the liberty of the person. You could be totally free physically, totally healthy, unencumbered by any physical prisons. But as you know, stone walls do not a prison make. <laughs> So-called free people live in a prison house of thoughts every day. You see. So that's the thing. Give the body what is due unto the body. Let the body have its medicines. Let the body have its foods. Don't think that you need that though. You see, um, it's got nothing to do with you. Let the mind have what the mind needs. If the mind needs a label in order to organize itself better, sure. You don't need any of that. You see, you never at any point in this process of tending to the body or the mind conflate yourself with those two things. You know what's interesting though? The moment you stop identifying with the body, the body assumes perfect health. Isn't that weird? I mean, you'll notice this. Most of the illnesses in the body come from contractions in the mind. Uh, it's fear. It's stress. It's a, a tightening of the inner groin, tightening of the lower back. All of our fear responses cause, you know, the, as, as, as we've discovered in heart lab or heart math here in California, there's the acetylation and myelation of DNA that clearly corresponds to emotional states. There's a very clear correspondence um, between um, like the DNA tightening up and reducing immunity response and feeling bad, you know? So when one feels relaxed and necessarily when you no longer take the body seriously, you feel relaxed, the body becomes so relaxed. The muscles ease up. There's no more holding or tightness. And as a result, lymphatic fluid flows nicely. Blood circulates properly. Electrical impulses race up and down the spine unobstructed. The body seems to in, uh, inhere in health when you no longer consider yourself the body. Do you ever notice the harder you try to win someone's heart, the more elusive their love becomes? It's like desperation is the most unattractive thing in courtship. Why should that principle be any different with the body? Really trying to keep the body alive will ultimately kill it. You know, <laughs> when you obsess with uh, making the body healthy, you will find you are sicker than ever. <laughs> so you must just let the body assume its natural health. Um, you know, like the wisdom of homeopathy or, uh, you know, um, what we might call naturopathic remedies or Ayurveda or acupuncture, it posits health as a natural state. You know, it's not something to achieve. It's something to relax into or realign into. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Drinking mercury for immortality. Beautiful. And uh, I would love to talk about congenital disease at the end of the lecture. That's a good one. That's a good one. I'd like to hear um, a longer conversation on that, certainly. So then... Um, we got mind, you know, so the mind, it only stresses out if you think yourself to be the mind. In other words, do you ever notice when you try to have the perfect day, it's the worst day of your life? Do you know the nightmare of the American wedding? It's sold to you as your day. 
It's the one day you have to enjoy happiness. It's the one day you will receive attention. Um, also your birthday. Birthdays can be so stressful because it's the one day you're allowed to be like self-obsessed. It's the one day it has to be about you. And so necessarily there's a lot of pressure. <laughs> there's a lot of pressure around the birthday, a lot of pressure around the wedding day. And those two things um, tend to be horrible. They tend to be so stressful and constricted. And, you know, um, you might look back and say, ah, it was beautiful. But in actuality, if you remember what it was like, you know, to get your dress in order and to run from one thing to another, the flower person won't sell you flowers because of your sexual orientation. I don't know. There was just a series of problems on that day. The cake showed up, um, but the, you know, racial attribution of the couple and the cake didn't match. You know, like all sorts of things will happen on the wedding day. And it's, it's like Murphy's Law. You know, I play in a rock band and I find the more stressed I am about a show, the more likely something is going to break on stage. You know, it's always the Viper Room show. It's that one show that the band is most excited about. You know, the crowning show of the tour. That's the one that some inexplicable electrical malfunction will occur. And I still remember, you know, um, we were playing the show and having not played for a while since the pandemic, it was very exciting to be back on stage. And we were playing just a house show, house party. Oh, Tahira, yes. It will be recorded and available for you as soon as possible on Patreon. I'll try to be better about that. I know I've been kind of behind. Anyway, um, and I was at this show playing, and we were also excited to be together, but that excitement kind of bordered on perhaps attachment. We were invested in the show. We wanted to know that we still got it, baby, you know? And so we went on stage, and for some reason, no sound, and not, not to say no sound. In fact, no sound would have been a, a, a mercy. It was not that no sound was coming out of my guitar. There was like a sludge, like a... And I'm like, cool, I got this. I replaced my cable. I, I've learned my lesson. Always have two of everything. I replaced the cable. Okay, well, maybe it's the daisy chain connected to the pedals. All right, fix that. Okay, no, don't worry. Contingency plan. Get rid of all the pedals. Go straight into the amp. Okay, all right, no problem. It's the amp. It is, after all, an 80s Marshall stack. Cool, switch the amp. I tried everything, every single thing. I got the event manager to check the power. We tried, like, a lamp on the power. Everything was fine. It was the guitar. Who would have thunk it was the pickups on the guitar? You know, it's like when you lose your glasses, but they were on your face the whole time. The guitar had just kaputed, something I never thought would have happened, you know. I've broken strings, I've broken guitars, but never like in that way that the pickup just gave up. Um, and so uh, it's just a, a glaring reminder that the shows that you're invested in are the shows that always seem to um, fail. Similarly, the show, and in that same breath, the shows that nobody cares about are always the ones that are, are the best. So another example from the wonderful world of rock and roll, Black Sabbath's seminal album, uh, Paranoid. In that record, there were songs, really sophisticated and beautiful songs that the band spent, you know, years and years honing and developing. But you know what the hit was? The hit of the album Paranoid was not any of those sophisticated rock and roll masterpieces. The hit of that album was a song that Tony Iommi, the guitar player, threw together on a whim while everyone else was at lunch. The rest of the band went to get a pint of beer at the pub down the road, and Tony Iommi was just like, 
you know, and uh, Ozzy comes back to the studio and he's like, hey, that's cool. And he gets on the mic and he goes, finished with my woman because he couldn't help me with my mind, you know, and, and, and that's the hit. That's the song that skyrocketed that band to international rock and roll stardom. It seems like when bands don't try, they succeed. The moment they try to get conceptual and cool, that record is nowhere on the charts. Similarly, the harder you try to have a perfect day, the worse that day is going to be for you. But the more you relax into the day, the more you allow it to be just what it wants to be, the more likely you are to be surprised by the casual beauty and grandeur of the moment. You know, those days that snuck up on you and you look back and you're like, wow. You can't recreate it because it was your relaxing and your letting go that allowed for it, you see. This is how we deal with upadhis. Yes, the best songs and poems write themselves. What is it? Um, Stairway to Heaven was a 13-minute writing effort. <laughs> yes. So when you relax, when you give up your attachment to things, they come along much more smoothly. When you're dating, when you're playing music, when you're dealing with the body, when you're dealing with the mind, it seems like nature sees to itself when you step out of the way. This is the grand theme of the Tao Te Ching. You know, um, the Tao Te Ching is all about Wu Wei, actionless action, kind of backing out, surrendering your involvement, and then being surprised by the miracle of life living itself through you. There's that statement, um, decisions become easy when values are clear or something like that. Uh, we can rework that. Decisions become effortless. Life lives itself when you no longer take yourself to be the body and the mind. The best shot you have at a healthy body and a beautiful mind is to surrender your investment in both of those things. Ah, the paradoxes of spirituality, huh? Okay, so that's the first concept, upadhi. Upadhi is a very important concept because it is the reason for our suffering. As long as upadhi occurs, suffering is. The moment we sunder or um, sever the link uh, between us and our body and mind, the upadhi is gone. We've dissolved the upadhi, so to speak. And we're able to be aware of it, recognizing that we are not that, and so we can relax. All right. Now, the next thing is the second principle. So we've done the first principle, which is upadhi. The second principle is sakshi, which means to witness. The pure, um, compassionate witnessing of life is a unstinting grace or beneficence of the non-dual practice. So rather than become overly attached to the psychodrama of life, why not sit back and watch it occur in a spirit of warm, compassionate curiosity and humor. You see, it's not happening to you, it's happening to your body and the mind. So rather than get all entangled in that drama, why not just sit back and watch? You see, you cannot enjoy the movie if you really think yourself to be the characters. You know, I saw the Goya movie the other day, Grace put it on, Goya's Ghost or whatever, um, with Natalie Portman, and uh, we were surprised. It wasn't an art autobiography as much as it was a Spanish Inquisition movie. It was a movie of, about torture, you know? And <laughs> it was just kind of like a dark film of Natalie Portman getting tortured um, for being a Judea Judaizer, you know? And uh, obviously that movie wouldn't be enjoyable at all if I really thought I was being tortured or better yet, if I really thought she was being tortured. You know what I mean? If, if I didn't realize that Natalie Portman is an actor in a film, I might have really felt disturbed by the fact that on my screen is someone being horrifically tortured, being put to the question, you know, in the 18th century Spanish Inquisitions. 
How horrific. But no, the ability to enjoy the movie is contingent upon me recognizing everyone as actors and upon me recognizing that it is a movie that ultimately is fictional and ultimately doesn't have that much to do with me. So when I can recognize that the body and mind have very little to do with me, uh, then I can actually start to enjoy them, you see? As long as I'm caught up in my mind, I'm not able to enjoy my mind. That is, I'm not able to enjoy the wonderful experiences that do occur. Advaita says, don't shirk away from the beauty. Don't ignore the delight of being a mind. You know, there is a true sacredness to the happinesses of the mind. However, um, there is also a tremendous frustration when those happinesses go away. The ability to enjoy the mind is contingent upon your ability to witness it non-attachedly. That is, if happiness comes, enjoy it while it's there. If happiness goes, bid it adieu with a complete understanding that it has nothing to do with you. You see, when sorrow comes, you might be able to enjoy while it's there. You see, if you were the witness, um, you might be able to appreciate sadness, grief as an artistic experience. You see, we don't just make art about happy things, right? Kurt Cobain sings about some pretty dark stuff, but we can enjoy that. We can enjoy blues music. We can enjoy Nirvana uh, because ultimately you can enjoy something as long as there's space between you and it. So if you notice every sadness arising in the mind, and if you cease making statements such as I am sad, and instead you say, ah, I am witnessing a feeling. Instead of even calling it a sadness, you might say, there is an experience now in my awareness, or rather in me, the awareness, there is an experience of tightening in the chest. There is an experience of shortness of breath. There is a perhaps pit widening in the belly. If instead you use that language, you no longer will be tyrannized by emotions. You will delight in them. You see, you can truly enjoy everything that happens in the mind because you know it has nothing to do with you. Sakshi, witness it. Now, even the body, there are pleasures. One must not be frightened of pleasure. You see, the beginner in spirituality perhaps needs to cultivate a kind of fanaticism when it comes to pleasure. You see, in the beginning, pleasure seems to draw you into endless cycles of craving. And so if you just allow every impulse to kick you this way and that, you will sooner or later find yourself a slave to what Paolo Coelho might call the perpetual Sunday afternoon. You know, that horrible ennui of living a life of pleasure that almost any hedonist materialist can tell you. At age 50, there's a kind of bitterness that creeps into their lives because the Sunday afternoon is nice for only a little while. Sunday afternoon is only nice in comparison to the rest of the week. If it was just Sunday afternoon, ad infinitum, you would drive yourself insane, you see. So, of course, pleasure is dangerous for the beginner. Um, pleasure is a trap for the beginner. But for the intermediate to advanced practitioner, as long as you have cultivated a healthy amount of non-attachment, you should be able to enjoy any pleasure that arises without fearing its dissolution. As a pleasure comes up, you understand fully that it's transient. You understand fully that the pleasure cannot satisfy you. Why? Because you are not the mind and pleasure is in the mind. Uh, you know, how can dog food ever satisfy you? It's dog food. Uh, but you might, okay, that, that analogy, that Sankin analogy doesn't work here because ultimately I'm saying you can't enjoy it. <laughs> Guillermo says, I'm watching you instead of Bachelor in Paradise. <laughs> Wait, Guillermo, this is Bachelor in Paradise. <laughs> this is the bonus episode. <laughs> if 
bachelor means to be alone, awareness is completely self-sufficient. It is alone. So it is the bachelor in paradise. <laughs> okay. So as long as you can be the Sakshi, the pure, non-attached, pure witness, you can truly enjoy what comes without fearing it's going away. And you can enjoy what's there knowing that it will go away. This too shall pass will become a lived experience in your life, you see. Um, if something bad comes, you can smile and enjoy it because you know it's not forever. Do you know how when something bad happens, you usually act as if it's forever? Like that story I was telling a few lectures ago when I was in Denver, and this was back before uh, marijuana was legal in California, back when I was still interested in the psychedelic experience. Um, there was no, like, it was exciting to be in Denver and to be able to go into a pharmacy um, and pick up edibles without having to go on Vine Street and go into an alley and meet someone, you know. It was, it was nice to be able to just, like, walk into an a upscale-looking place and be like, give me one of the... Uh, Weed gummies, please, you know? And so we had bought these little five milligram gummies and we played some inane board game, like some sleuth spy board game. And we were just throwing these gummies back like popcorn, you know? We had gotten so high. And I remember I had gone into the hotel bathroom and uh, I looked in the mirror and I was like, oh, I'm going to be high forever. This is my life now. <laughs> and since then, I realized how often I do this with every emotion I have, you know, like, let's say my relationship with someone is a bit rocky. I'm like, no, this is my life from now on. This is how it's always going to be, you know. <laughs> Her and I will never be okay again and, and give it a couple of hours and we're back to being what we were before, you know. Um, things come and go. But when we're sad, we think we will always be sad. However, if we are purely the witness, if we're used to simply witnessing things come and go, then when the sadness comes, not only do we know that it's going to go, but because we know that it's going to go, we can open up to it. We can appreciate it for what it is. We can truly be with it. Uh, we don't resist it as much. You know, We don't um, fear it as much. And there's a tremendous spaciousness that comes with that. When a happiness comes, then we can truly enjoy it. Because, uh, what is it William Blake says? He whosoever tries to catch a happiness, um, kills the winged, winged delight or something. And he whosoever awakens to eternal sunrise. There's a beautiful William Blake poem. I forget it. I, I'll have to memorize that one for you. But William Blake makes the same point in that poetry, the eternal sunrise or something. Um, and in that poem, he says, the more you cling on to happiness, the more it will elude you. The moment you relax and allow things to come and go, the happier you'll be. So sadness becomes beautiful and happiness becomes so much more delightful and meaningful because both are seen as passing transient phenomenon. You are the witness. You can calmly watch it come and go. So recognizing upadi awakens you to sakshi. Now, here's another thing that you must know about sakshi. The witness is unchanged by the event being witnessed. This is very important for you to remember. The sadness doesn't change you. The happiness also doesn't change you. In fact, nothing has anything to do with you, the awareness. So you are pristine. You are pure. What use is babbling like babies about original sin? You know, what use is babbling about impurity? No, awareness is the purest thing that is. It's the most pristine. It cannot be sullied by anything uh, because it is the witness. Now think of this. What does light stick to? You know, if I were to turn a lamp on in the room, does the light um, get 
uh, harmed by what it shines upon. So if I had like a bowl of decayed, I don't know, maggot-infused bread, does the light somehow become tarnished by shining on that bowl? Do you consider the light somehow, um, uh, you know, changed by virtue of shining on the bowl? Now, if that same light were to shine on the bowl, and then I took the bowl outside and, like, nuked it or something, there's no more bowl, and I put a bowl of water with flowers in it, um, you'd be like, ah, how beautiful. It's not like you'd be like, no, it's less beautiful because that light was just in contact with that bowl. No, the light is beyond touch. You know, the light doesn't get tarnished or changed by what it shines upon. You, the Sakshi, are a light shining into the universe. Whatever your light of witnessing alights upon, your light remains unchanged. Your light remains unaffected. Sadness cannot do anything to you. Death, pain, old age, none of that can affect the light of witnessing. Knowing this, you are completely pure. You are untouched. You are unsullied. Um, how exciting, you know? There's some people in the room wearing white. Some of the reasons that we wear white is to remember that we are innately pure and nothing can harm that purity, nothing. Because what can make light less shining, less brilliant, less beautiful? Do you see? Understanding the point of Sakshi moves you beyond all judgment of sin, moves you beyond all self-reclamation, all self-loathing. You are unsullied. You know, and if you could recognize that, you would awaken to the pristine grandeur, innocence, and invulnerability that is inherent in the act of witnessing. Mm. So savor Sakshi, savor the purity of it, savor the invulnerability and invincibility of it. The light is not affected by that which it shines upon. You are the light, not the objects alighted. You see. Okay. So. Guillermo is asking, why would awareness um, choose to go through all of this? Yes, and this is the same question that Pooja was asking earlier about how the Upadis came to delude us. You know, where was the men in black with their little machine, you know, like, bloop, bloop, and then we forgot that we were awareness. How did that happen? And I will answer that question for you in about 30-ish minutes, well, 25. So, um, stay tuned. <laughs> in, the, in this episode of <laughs> Bachelor in Paradise, find out why <laughs> we ended up on the <laughs> um, understanding this concept better and 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 loss still hurts so much yes yes understanding is realizing so in the beginning you might just have an intellectual understanding of what we're talking about um, and that might not yet flower into a full experience you might still identify with your apathies and you might still think that the various experiences are affecting you but once you dwell on these ideas and really see how it's true you know, because ideally, it's, you're not supposed to believe this. You're supposed to see how it's true. The argument should be so persuasive to your intellect. Um, and, you know, when you're convinced that the road is blocked, wouldn't you alter course? When your intellect is satisfied knowing that this way is shut, it was made by those who are dead and the dead keep it. <laughs> the way is shut. No, if, if the intellect is aware that the way is shut, um, don't you think you'll change route? you'll take a different road, you know? If you knew something was futile, if you truly knew it, uh, you wouldn't do it. Um, and if you're doing it, it means you don't yet truly know it. So you're right. That's a beautiful point, Cesar. And every day we come together, every Monday we come together to try to know it a little bit better. Try to see it, you know, not to indoctrinate it, because uh, that doesn't work. That only goes so far. To see it for ourselves. 
You know, you must not confuse, as the Buddha said, the finger pointing at the moon with the moon itself. Ultimately, these words are meant to point you to something you can verify in your own life. And if you can't verify it, then we're not doing our job, you see. Don't believe a single word we're saying. See for yourself. See for yourself that you are not the body nor are you the mind by virtue of being the one who is aware of those two things. See for yourself that awareness is uncolored or untouched by the things that it is aware of. Just like light as a metaphor is untouched by the things that it uh, illuminates. That's Sakshi. Now, um, let's use another metaphor. Adishtana. Now, Adishtana is the third principle we're going to talk about today. So Upadhi. Um, is the first principle. Sakshi, witnessing, is the second principle. Now we're going to talk about adishtana. Oh, sorry, I should spell that a bit better. Adishtana means the ground. Adishtana explains um, how it is you are connected to the various things that you are experiencing. Now notice this, you can never prove, and I mean this categorically, you can never prove, you may try, but you can never prove the existence of anything outside of awareness. You can never show me an objective thing. Everything you claim to be objective requires a subject to make that claim. You know, so you show me supposed scientific data on a computer, that data is still within awareness. And it's within my perception, you know. Um, I can never prove the existence of anything independent of my awareness. Does that mean there's nothing outside of my awareness? Well, according to Sankhya, no. Sankhya says there could be something. I mean, there probably is something. Um, because if there wasn't something, how is it that I'm having this experience? However, Sankhya is very wise to say the something out there is not the something I think. You see, so the world that I exist in is not the world that's there. In other words, you can never perceive the world that's there. You can only infer its existence. You see, you can infer the existence of a something, but you will only be able to interact with it through your own psychological delusion or superimposition. You see, that's what Sankhya says. But Sankhya doesn't want to deny the something. Sankhya says, no, 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 realistically, there is a something. It's there. Um, however, you will never see it. You will never interact with it because you are Purusha. Sankhya doesn't deny the flower, you know, and remember the, the crystal and the flower is kind of like a Sankhyan idea. It says the flower is real, it just wants you to see that you are not the flower. But there is a flower, you can never know the flower, because the crystal is not a flower, you know. However, Advaita Vedanta goes even further, it says, nah, that's baloney. I mean, prove it. Prove that something is there. It makes no sense to talk about something that cannot be proven. You know, it's, it's irrational to say, you know what, in the other room, there's a Florgish board. Are you afraid? There's a Florgish board there. Can I see the Florgish board? No, no. It's not something that can be seen or experienced or, or you can't be aware of it ever. So then why talk about it? No, 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 there's a Florgish board. I would be insane to suggest to you that there is something that cannot be experienced. Can you imagine there are people who actually believed in a sky fairy they call God um, who can never be experienced or at least who, who, who believe that God can't be experienced? If God exists, I must experience her. I will not accept a God I cannot experience. Fortunately, God is very experienceable. Not to say God can be seen or heard or tasted or smelt in the traditional sense. Uh, God can be experienced in a much more intimate sense, actually. You see. So I am convinced of the existence of the God with form only upon having experienced her. I would never claim her existence otherwise. That's the spirit of Indian philosophy. Show us and then we'll believe.
you know. And by show, we're not naive. We're not saying show us in our eyes. No, show us in our experience. It must be tangible in some way, not necessarily a material or physical way, but in some way. It makes no sense to talk about something that can never um, be shown. So Westifer asks, you can't prove that anything exists outside of awareness, but can you prove that only awareness exists? Yes, great question. Now, um, in this experience, the one um, indispensable thing or the one indispensable principle is awareness. Without awareness, I wouldn't be coherently able to speak of anything other than it. So this is essentially the claim of Advaita that distinguishes it from Sankhya. It says, given that we cannot show the existence of anything apart from awareness, it's better that we renounce believing in it. It's better that we say nothing exists apart from awareness because this is a phenomological approach, remember. It's not a really logical approach. It's not really even an overly philosophical approach. It's a very simple approach. Uh, simple but not simplistic. It's the approach that says, let's look at this moment. Now, uh, my favorite, the Ayurvedic copper water bottle argument is a great demonstration, you know. My concept, Ayurvedic copper water bottle, depends on there being in the world of form such a sense event as this. Without this kind of color and shape and texture, without this thing, I could not have coherently formed in, in my worldview the concept Ayurvedic copper water bottle, you know. So the same is true for Tibetan singing bowl. Some of us have never seen one. Um, and if I say Tibetan singing bowl, that word might not correspond to anything in your reality. However, if you see one, you're like, ah. So the essence of a concept is a sense event. Without the sense event, there would be no concept. And this is true for concepts like unicorn too. Even though it's like a fictional concept, I mean, I don't know where your worldview is there, but it, like, let's say there's a fictional concept like unicorn, even that is an esomplastic, uh, you know, like you needed a horn, you need to see rhinos, uh, and you needed to see, I don't know, um, narwhals, and then you need to see horses, and then you were able to put those two things together. You can't talk about the Florgish board um, because if I wanted to talk about the Florgish board, I would have to appeal to something you have seen. Well, it's a little like a frog, um, but it's like a frog that's like a jaguar that you see. You know, have you ever heard someone try to describe a jackalope to you? <laughs> they have to talk about it in terms of like things that you do know, because it makes no sense to talk about things that cannot be referred to. So concepts refer, meaning they do, do, uh, emerge or they're an epiphenomenon of sense events. Sense events emerge. They're an epiphenomenon of sensing. No matter how many of these things there are, if I had no eyes to perceive them, they wouldn't be there for me. Now, imagine if you had no eyes, ears, nose, mouth. Um, it would make no sense for you to like think about these things. They don't exist for you. No one could tell you they existed. You know, I could come next to you and be like, there's a, such a thing as I, you know, you have no ears. You wouldn't be able to hear me. You couldn't perceive it. And if you can't perceive it, you cannot think it. So you see, um, sensing is the root or the essence of sense event and sense event is the essence of concept. So the world, the world of concepts depends on the world of sensation. The world of sensation depends on the organs of sensation and those depend on awareness. Without awareness, I wouldn't be able to speak of all these other things. So in my experience, I'm not able to dispense with awareness because even if I say there's no awareness, who is the one to whom that realization is occurring? There must be something some principle, some Tao. Now, um, the Buddhist will say, no, it's an aggregate. You know, you, you know, it's funny. In Indian philosophy, we have this thing where we say the rose, the properties of the rose, the color red, the smell of the rose, um, all of that 
inheres in some roseness, some essence rose. Uh, and the Buddhists say, not necessarily. Why do you have to posit the existence of essence rose as a container for sensation? Isn't it enough that you have a conglomerate of smells, sights, tastes, you know? So uh, the Buddhists might say, no, no, no. Awareness is just part of the conglomerate. It's part of the matrix and it can be dispensed with. You know, however, that runs into problems in the second century when Madhyamika Buddhism starts to show up. So remember, there was Sarvastivada Buddhism and Sarvastivada Buddhism and its opposite Yogacara Buddhism were spending centuries debating what seemed to be a very difficult logical point. And the point was this. The opposite of samsara is nirvana. That is the opposite of the wheel of birth and death. The opposite of suffering is nirvana. Uh, the Buddhist system is highly causal. Um, if this, then not that. If not this, then that. So in the Buddha's logical scheme, if nirvana, that is, if you discover um, the summation of Buddhist practice, then not samsara. You see, you no longer have samsara. If samsara, it's because not nirvana. So nirvana and samsara are diametrically opposed. But another tenet of Buddhist faith is, or not faith, sorry, practice, is the um, emptiness of samsara, the shunyata, you know. So ultimately, the world is nothing but an empty appearance. In, in a way, very much like Sankhya or Advaita, the world is just, not like Sankhya, sorry, like Advaita, the world is an appearance. It appears to be, but in actuality, it's not. It's a flux of change. Now, if the world is unreal, then the opposite of an unreal thing itself must be unreal. Don't ask me why, it's an Indian logical problem, but maybe some of you of a more logical bent might feel the force of this argument. Remember, Buddhist, Northern Buddhist philosophy is very logical. I can't even describe to you the dizzying heights of Buddhist philosophy. Vivekananda once said the Buddha was the sanest man who ever lived. There were no cobwebs in that brain. Honestly, if your brain is not immaculate, if your mind is not a pristine functional machine, you have no business studying Buddhism because it's so complex and beautifully so. It's tight. You know, it's so tight. Um, and to appreciate its tightness is to, is to really master logic. You must have a strong grasp on logic and dialectic. Anyway, this was the logical problem. The opposite of a non-thing itself must be opposite. Uh, sorry, itself must be a non-thing. Do you see how we are now in trouble? If the opposite of samsara is nirvana, and if samsara is void, then nirvana too is nothing. And if nirvana is nothing, then it cannot get you out of samsara. And if nirvana is nothing, then what's the point of Buddhism? It becomes French existentialism as that, at that point. Everything is suffering, you know? <laughs> so how do we, how do we solve this? What do we do? So the Sarvastivadas had a brilliant approach. They said, no, samsara is real. Samsara exists. Um, it exists in a transitional way. They ascribe something called a dharma, and a dharma is like an aggregate of things that move, and these dharmas are real. Um, this, by the way, is a Nyayan idea. The idea, it's, it's the same. It's like the, the rose needs something to hold the aggregates together, you see. Um, and the opposite of samsara is nirvana. It's okay, samsara is real, nirvana must be real. Obviously, this realist form of Buddhism was not very popular. Um, its opponent became more popular. Yogacara is the opposite of that. It says, no, 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 samsara and nirvana aren't real. It's okay, nothing's real, it's all empty. Uh, I don't care that nirvana isn't real. I don't need any realness. Realness is a function of the mind. Fuck the mind. That's yogacara. It's fundamentalist Buddhism. It's Buddhism on steroids. It's Buddhism squared. Yogacara is awesome. It's so cool. However, um, it's not satisfactory. It's not satisfactory to say, yeah, fuck it, no nirvana, no samsara. Ontologically, that is, is kind of, it leaves you um, 
kind of thirsty. So there was a beautiful philosopher named Nagarjuna, one of the great masters of Buddhism, who emerged somewhere in the second century AD, who proposed what he called the Madhyamika school. Madhyamika means middle way, which I think the Buddha would have enjoyed tremendously. Madhyamika is the middle way between Sarvastivada and um, Yogacara. Now, for those of you who are not so interested in the uh, subtleties of Buddhist philosophy, I apologize. This stuff just really excites me and we're almost, just a little bit more, we're almost getting through the Buddhism part. Blame Westifer for that, you know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing better than when an Advaitin meets a Buddhist. It's the greatest debates in, in history of philosophy. Anyway, so um, Madhyamika Buddhism says this. Yes, nirvana is the opposite of samsara, but why does it have to be that way? What if nirvana is samsara? What if the relationship isn't a diametrical opposition relationship? What if nirvana and samsara are simply two ways of looking at the same thing? In other words, the other two schools, Sarvastivada and Yogacara, were dealing with the diametrical opposition, samsara or nirvana. Nagarjuna uh, uh, gives a third thing. He says, there is a thing, it's called the void. And the void appears to the unenlightened as samsara. But that very same void that only a moment ago was for you samsara is for me the master nirvana. I'm not saying nirvana is different from your samsara. I'm saying what you see as samsara, I see as nirvana. Nirvana equals samsara, depending on which side of the fence you're on. Problem solved. However, the only way the problem could be solved is by positing this third thing that Nagarjuna called the void. You know, it's called Shunyavada Buddhism. So Madhyamika is a traditional middle way, but it's more, more likely it's, it's, you, you might hear it as Shunyavada. You know, it's styled Shunyavada or Shunya meaning void. Shunyavada is void knowledge Buddhism or it's very metal, right? Void Buddhism. The Buddhism of the void. Okay, yes, Shunyavada. So Shunyavada Buddhism is the precursor for Advaita Vedanta. A lot of people actually say uh, um, Gaudapada and Shankaracharya, you know, the great non-dual masters, they call them crypto-madhyamikas, you see, because they say Nagarjuna laid the foundation for Advaita Vedanta. You see, Nagarjuna is making a snake and the rope argument. He's saying the one rope appears to the unenlightened as a snake. Though, you know, uh, Lyric, thank you so much for coming. It's so nice to see you. It's always so nice to see your radiance. Thank you. Now, the one rope is the snake, but it's also the rope. It's not like the snake and rope are two different things. Um, that's why uh, we say Madhyamika Buddhism or Shunyavada Buddhism is foundational for Advaita. And Advaitins say, back to the Madhyamikas, well, where did you get that void? Is that not the Atman, not the self? Now we get into this debate. Are we talking about the same thing using different words? Is the void perhaps more appealing to one who is more interested in ending suffering? So if you want to end suffering, you're on a negative quest. Frodo is going to destroy the ring, you see. Frodo is going to get rid of the ring. It's an anti-quest. So if you go on an anti-quest, you might phrase things in, in language like void or emptiness. However, if you're a grail knight, you're going to get the holy grail. Now you're on a quest quest in the traditional sense of the word. So now you might use different language, you know. So the yogi or the Advaitin is on a quest to answer the question, who am I? Um, the Buddhist is on a quest to answer the question, how can I end suffering? Because they're asking different questions, necessarily they formulate the answers in different ways. Now the question is, is there a distinction? 
I mean on the level of experience. If you walk the Buddhist path to its complete summation and you walk the Advaitic path to its complete summation, would you end up at the same place? Or would you be in two different, equally satisfying places? This is an idea I am currently playing with. Um, I cannot answer you because I'm still experimenting, particularly with Christianity. I'm trying to discover if the agape of Christianity is, in fact, different from the spaciousness I feel upon realizing the self. They might be. You know, I'm starting to realize they might be. There might be different enlightenments appealing to different people, which makes the game of life so much funner. Because if I succeed at an Advaitic path, I might be able to play again and do a Buddhist path. If I succeed at that, I'll play again and do a Sufi path. You see, this is why Ramakrishna found so much delight in practicing all the different religions consecutively. He's not, by the way, he's not spreading himself thin over a variety of different practices, uh, assimilating only a superficial level. No, he's going deep to the ending point of all those philosophies, and he's delighted by all of it. So at the end of the day, can you in one lifetime experience the agape of the Christians, the complete innocence and knowing of Allah, of the Sufis, the complete freedom of all concern of the Advaitin, the ecstasy of the Tantrika, and the... Um, insurmountable piece of the Buddhist all in one lifetime? Maybe not, and just as well. Because maybe I'd like to play some more levels. I don't know. Just an idea. It's, it's Don't take any of that. It's not part of this lecture. It's just something that's going on in the laboratory right now. And maybe in a couple of months, um, we'll get a lecture on that, huh? But give me some more time. <laughs> now, um, that's so much for Madhyamika Buddhism. So ultimately, Upadhi, Sakshi, and Adishtana are the three principles we have. I want to explain Adishtana a little more. Awareness gives rise to sense organs. Sense organs give rise to sense events. And sense events give rise to the world. Thanks to awareness, I have everything else. Everything is premised on awareness. So you might say everything is made of awareness. In other words, everyone I see, everything I see is me appearing through me through the medium of me. And I don't mean me niche, by the way. Some people, beginners to Advaita Vedanta, think this to be a solipsistic philosophy. It's actually the opposite. You see, a solipsistic philosophy says the world revolves around you, only you matter. The you of solipsism is the psychological you. We negate that. We turn that on its head. We say the you that you think you are doesn't actually even exist. So we're talking about the awareness in which your illusory self comes and goes. You see, so... That awareness is you, and as such, everything appears in awareness, right? Everything is made up of awareness. And so you're able to step back and appreciate life in this kind of unified field of awareness. It's the unified field theory of spirituality. The idea that everything is connected in a fundamental way. You don't dismiss that bodies are different. I mean, it would be a great tragedy if I looked at Daniel and saw Nish. You know, Daniel and Nish are foxy in very different ways. <laughs> but it's nice to notice that, right? It's nice to notice there are physical differences. Then it's nice to notice there are mental differences. Everyone has a specific personality which makes life exciting because every time you encounter someone, you encounter yourself in a new way. Now, um, I'm able to appreciate with perfect love and unity those dis differences if I can feel into the underlying unity that's there. 
You see, so we're not saying gloss over differences, ignore differences. We're saying contextualize your differences in the unified field of awareness. Because without awareness, none of it is. Awareness is the ground out of which everything arises. So I like Swami Sarva Priyananda's uh, metaphor of the movie screen. Big fan of his work. And he did a lecture very similar to this. Um, and his was called, uh, he, he was talking about Asangoham. He was describing the mantra, Asangoham, Asangoham, Puna, Puna, Asangoham. You know, I am unattached, unattached am I. Again and again do I sing, I am unattached. The great hymn of Shankaracharya. And he was talking about the movie screen. He said, um, in a very beautiful uh, metaphor, the movie screen is the ground of the movie. Without the movie screen, you won't have um, the movie, you see. But the movie doesn't affect the movie screen. Okay, you see. So without the movie screen, you won't have the movie, meaning the awareness that you are is the ground of your everyday experience. However, that doesn't mean your everyday experience can affect you. You might say, if everything is made of awareness, then if someone dies, I die a little bit. <gasps> you know, um, if, if someone is sad, I too should be sad. You know, no, 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 no. Whatever happens, even though it depends on you, is of a different order of reality and cannot affect you. This is the fourth and final principle, which we are closing with, which is vivarta. Vivarta means appearance. This is so important for Advaita, and it's what distinguishes Advaita from tantric non-duality. Nish often jokes that he's an Advaitin um, in theory and a tantrika in practice, because Advaita gives you the tantric ecstasy, but I find tantric philosophy to be woefully inadequate in this particular way. If you assert that the awareness is inextricably linked to the thing that it's aware of. And remember, the Tantrika wants to say this. The Tantric non-dualist says, Shiva Shakti, awareness and its object are part of one continuum. Okay, if that's true though, you lose your peace. Because that means something that happens in the object happens to you. Now you're back to being invested in the world, see? The problem with tantric non-duality, in my humble opinion, is it forces your hand back into the world. You now have to become invested in other people. However, if you realize that awareness is the only thing that exists, only it is, and that the objects of awareness are not real emanations or projections of it, but they are mere appearances of it, so much the better for you. With relaxation and calmness, you can watch it come and go, and whatever the appearance is, no matter how nightmarish it is, it says nothing about you. You see, with tantric non-duality, it does say something about you. <laughs> if you experience tremendous horror in the world, um, you're supposed to be mature enough to appreciate that horror as ecstasy. It's Kali, you know, and that's awesome. To be able to do that is awesome. Um, but the Advaitic approach is to say, no, relax. It's not you. It's not an emanation of you. It's not a projection of you. Um, it's not real. It's appearing. And therefore, its appearance leaves you unscathed. In the same way, the bombs and missiles and all the things that happen in an action movie don't actually harm the movie screen, see? The movie screen is the ground upon which the action movie is built, but nothing that happens in the action movie can leave any imprint on the movie screen. The movie screen is totally not affected. Did the movie screen create the movie? Not really. The director did. Is the movie screen responsible for Arjuna's cowardice? 
Is the movie screen responsible for Duryodhana's malice? I mean, assuming the movie is the Bhagavad Gita. Um, is it the movie screen's fault? No! The movie screen is not the author of any of the experiences. Now, in Tantric Duality, it is. <laughs> Which gives you the problem of evil again, you know why? In, in Tantric Non-Duality, um, this is uh, the funny thing, you know. God, Shiva, awareness, created the world for Shiva's own delight. And that includes the delight of evil. So in, in, in Tantric non-duality, evil is seen as a kind of expression in the infinitude of Shiva. Ultimately, it's not real um, in, in the sense that like, oh, separate selves are harming separate selves. No, it's Shiva turning into both the aggressor and the victim because Shiva desires to experience both. He desires to be the aggressor and he desires to be the victim. And then through the law of karma, he desires to switch the roles. So as an aggressor, he can now become the victim. And as a victim, he can now become aggressor. All of that is within the Leela, the play of Shiva. Now, if you're not a mature meditator, and if you haven't enjoyed the ecstasies of Tantra, this will sound deeply disturbing to you. What do you mean God is the one that authored evil for his own sick delight? That's exactly what Tantric non-duality says. And I happen to not have a problem with it. However, um, you can see how philosophically speaking, it can be troubling. So instead, Advaita Vedanta offers something that perhaps is more philosophically, um, let's say, um, appealing, which is, no, 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 God didn't call it, cause evil. You want to know why there's evil? There isn't. <laughs> evil is an appearance. It's a movie. The screen did not cause the movie. What's the reason for the movie? I don't know. If you ask the screen, why is the movie there? The screen will say, I don't know, it's a movie. It comes and it goes. I didn't direct it. You know, people directed it. So the movie directs itself. In a way, the reasons for the movie are contained within the movie and cannot be extrapolated out of the movie. You know what this does? It forces humans to take responsibility for their bullshit and not ascribe it to God or some divine plan. Because it means if there's evil in the world, it's only on the level of the movie, the level of the play. That's why Krishna says to Arjuna in the opening teaching in chapter 2 of the the Bhagavad Gita. After he says Krishna, you know, Krishna's first teaching is man up actually. It's kind of funny. But Krishna's first teaching is this is most unbecoming of an Aryan male. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a, a strong man argument, bit patriarchal there. But I think if Krishna was talking to Radha, he would have said it in those terms. But he's saying to Arjuna, first and foremost, don't feel sorry for yourself, act. But then he's saying the next teaching, which is an Upanishadic teaching, is he who thinks that he is the killer and he who thinks he is killed are both ignorant of the truth. In other words, if you're invested in the movie at the expense of the movie screen, you have missed the point. Krishna is saying no one's actually dying. Who can you kill? You can kill a body. You can kill a mind. But can you kill the being? The awareness? No. It's an upadi that you're killing, you see. If a person is not a body, if a person is not a mind, then Arjuna, you know, what can you do? Your, your whole argument about immorality is not working here. Now, you see, this isn't just war theory. No one has read the Bhagavad Gita as a license for just war or violence. It's, funnily enough, uh, centuries of commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita, Shankaracharya, Ramanujacharya, Madhvacharya, not one talks about the Bhagavad Gita in terms of permissibility of violence, you see. <laughs> Ha, um, it's only recently that we think about that. But even if we were to consider it in that light, um, Krishna is denying the existence of killing and being killed. 
Not an easy teaching for someone who is very involved in the world, right? Because for them, they haven't yet seen awareness. They haven't yet recognized the movie screen. In Plato's allegory of the cave, they are still invested in the shadows on the wall. What sense do we have talking to such people? They will think we are immoral. <laughs> they will think we are heartless. Um, you cannot take someone out of the matrix who is not ready to come out of the matrix, as Morpheus explains to Neo. <laughs> you must let people enjoy their movies, you know. Um, and as so- song beautifully says, I, I, I love sobbing in a movie. Yeah, it feels so good. Isn't that sweet? How nice if we could live our lives like that. You know, sobbing in life. How good does it feel? The movie of our life. You see, how nice. So, Viverta, let's close here. Viverta is the understanding. Yes, drag them out kicking and screaming from the cave. No, they'll shut their eyes, you see. You'll do them more harm. <laughs> the eyes need to adjust to the sunlight. Now, um, Viverta is about appearance. Viverta says, while the movie screen is responsible as the ground of the movie, it's not actually responsible for the stuff going on in the movie. Brahman or Atman, which is the technical name for the self, the one witness or awareness, the essence nature, the self, the awareness is completely inert, completely passive. Awareness cannot affect, notice, awareness doesn't really affect the body. Nor does it affect the mind. Now, this is where Tantra has the better on us. Because Tantra says, no, it does. Because if awareness didn't affect the body and the mind, then when you became enlightened, you would show no change on the body and the mind, right? However, a person who became enlightened becomes healthy in the body and becomes calm in the mind. That shows that awareness acts on the mind, acts on the body. How can awareness be inert when it seems to create a strong shift in perceptual reality? You see? So that's what the Tantrika says to us. The Tantrika says, hey, you are Advaitin. What use is your awareness if it's inert, if it's beyond all matter? Um, and look, your very sages are peaceful. Your very sages are healthy. Not just that, your very sages perform miracles. How? How can awareness, which you say is inert, change the body, change the mind? Clearly awareness is active. You should take our Shiva Shakti over your Brahman. You see, so that's where I think they kind of win out a little bit, we come back and we say, no, 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 what's changing is not the body or the mind. What's changing is your perception of those things, which Krishema Raja also in his Pratya Bhignya Hridaya Sutra admits it. He says, no, no, you're right. The world doesn't change. It's the way you perceive the world that allows for you to perceive a change. You're perceiving the world from a different order of experience. Therefore, from that level, the body and the mind seems. Then Tantrikas come back and say, no, 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 it's not just about your perception. Other people see it. Other people who are still in the matrix see you as a god. They see you as a performer of miracles. To them, their perception hasn't changed, but your body and mind has changed. So you see, they win ultimately. I think in that argument, the tantrika has won. Awareness seems to affect the body and the mind. Maybe the last resort for Advaitin here is to say, okay, Adishtana. Ultimately, Adishtana. Everything is made of awareness. So even the appearance to some degree must be colored by awareness. So the more and more I can relax into awareness, the more and more the appearance becomes clarified. Obviously a topic for another day, that subtlety of Tantra versus Advaita with that regard. But here it's enough for me to convey Vivarta. The order of existence of the appearance is different from the awareness. Therefore, nothing that happens in the appearance can affect the awareness. Much like we discussed in Sakshi. The light is not affected by what it shines upon. Um, even though the movie screen is the basis for the movie, it ultimately isn't the author of the movie, nor is it affected by the movie. 
So these, my friends, are the four principles of Advaita Vedanta. As long as we can remember them, we have an opening into relaxation, spaciousness, better yet, renunciation. If we remember that we are not the body and the mind, if we remember every time we feel pain and we want to suffer, every time we feel grief and we want to suffer, if we can remember in those times that our suffering is an innocent error, it's not a punishment from God, <laughs> it's not the result of some past karma, Advaitins laugh at childish notions like that. No, we are not a superstitious uh, uh, tradition. We are a rational, profoundly incisive logical tradition, like the Buddhist. We share a lot in common, you see. And we say, this is all super superstition and speculation. God isn't punishing you. What, what value do you have in such a God? Much better to wrestle him, <laughs> you know, like Jacob eventually does. Uh, God doesn't punish. Ew, how primitive to think that there's a vengeful God. Nor there's their karma. I mean, how masochistic to say that you're like, I mean, karma is real. That, that certainly is a thing, but only on the level of the body and the mind, not for you. So when you experience pain, it's not because you are being punished. No, no, no. The body is in this karmic cycle. It's whatever. So you just remember that. You remember that you are not the body, nor are you the mind. You stop making statements. I am in pain. I am happy. I am sad. Uh, just instead make more neutral statements and see how that changes your experience. See how the spaciousness arises that makes each experience of the mind and body more delightful. Next, Sakshi. Witness it all. Compassionately be open to it. When you know you are not the body and the mind, you won't resist anything. You won't be frightened. And when you observe things from this place of fearlessness, then you can truly delight in it. You can be open to everything. You know, the danger of being a spiritual practitioner is in the beginning, you have to learn how to avoid pleasure um, as a trap. So you might end up becoming quite frightened of pleasure. You see, you might develop a complex where you fear the world lest it drag you back into spirituality. Oh, alcohol, you know? Um, yes, this boy doesn't drink any alcohol, but at the same time, I have noticed sometimes a tendency to fear it, you know? Um, sometimes it's like, oh, that substance is going to ruin my bliss. Wow, what's the worth of my bliss if a sip of wine will corrode it? Have I truly found bliss if a little bit of wine will destroy it? What fragile bliss? No, I want the bliss that is unsullied, untouched by anything that happens to the body and the mind. You know, tie me down and pour an entire barrel of wine over me and I will remain untouched, spiritually speaking. You know, um, in the beginning, maybe not. In the beginning, I might have gone, glug, 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 yeah, you know. But now it's like, glug, 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 yeah, but also, I'm chill. I won't crave this. You see, <laughs> it's very subtle and it's, it's the ultimate stage in Tantra, the ability to go back in the world. You see, you did not incarnate according to Tantra to simply renounce the world. You incarnated to enjoy it, but you can only enjoy it when you realize you are not of it. Be in the world, not of it. Then this world becomes your, your prize. They call it the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is here. You see, it's within. It's a matter of perception. So you must eventually be able to enjoy your life. Otherwise, what's the point of all this philosophy? It's just self-negation, right? Um, life negation. No, no, no. These philosophies are deeply life-affirming. But negation gets you to affirmation. So how do you enjoy life? As a witness. You know, just spaciously, um, beautifully, whatever comes, you delight in it. So you find yourself in some wild orgy somehow. You didn't seek it out. 
You didn't crave it. If it's somehow snatched away from you, you'll be peaceful. But if it's there, enjoy it. Why not? The way of Tantra. However, when it ends, and it will, you should not feel any remorse. If you feel any remorse or any craving to repeat that experience, you're caught. That's the danger. You know, if you want to have a glass of wine and you find you become attached to the feeling that the wine brings you, you're caught. But if you drink the wine and you enjoy the bliss while remaining unshaken in your real bliss, so much the better. You see, the bliss of the body, the bliss of the mind is nice, but it cannot hold a candle to the roaring sun of this bliss, the bliss of awareness, the bliss that shines beyond all body and mind, you see. So once established in that bliss, lesser bliss shouldn't be able to harm it. The blisses of the body and the mind should be harmed. So you can be open to anything. You can be open to enjoyment without it trapping you. But more importantly, life is often enjoyment and su- like pain, you know? So you can be open to pain without suffering. If something happens, you can go, ah, nice, cool. Sensation, as Austin beautifully said, sensation, not pain. Even that word pain might have a flavor. You know, for you, pain and suffering might be the same word. In India, it's not. Dukkha and, and klista, klistaha is different. You know, there, there's a nuance. Dukkha is when you ascribe meaning to the pain. Pain is just a feeling. We don't want to say it's just sensation because it is categorically different from pleasure. You know, so definitely there is something kind of contracted about pain. Um, but maybe, yeah, if you can just approach, appreciate it as sensation, wow, that's a really high thing. I don't even think Sankhya was able to go there. Sankhya still recognized the distinction between pain and pleasure. But if you can see it as just sensation, you've come to a very high place. Tell me what it's like from up there. I don't know yet. (laughs) Pain is certainly still pain for this boy, (laughs) but it's not suffering. Now, okay, so um, all this to say, you've got Upadhi, you've got Sakshi, and then you've got Adishtana. This connects you to everything. Without Adishtana, you might start to feel a sense of dissociation. You know, you might be like, oh, you know, you're all the other. Adishtana shows you that, no, 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 you should be open to nothing, nor should you resist anything because everything is you appearing to you through the medium of you. You can appreciate the isness of it all without needing to change it. You can simply appreciate the isness of it, the consciousness of it, the pure presence of being with other people. You don't need to try. You don't need to be like, oh, I have to be this kind of person for, to impress that kind of person. No, you just be natural. Because what you're enjoying in your natural, spontaneous, easeful state is just the presence of it. You know, you're more interested in being than in being anything, you know. So if you are the student, if you are the teacher, if you are the lover, if you are the friend, if you are the enemy, whatever, project the roles you will. Uh, being the enemy, being the friend, being the teacher, being the disciple, it's the being part of those two words that I care about, not the label, you see. Um, and that's wonderful. And then finally, vivartha. Recognizing it all as an appearance, know that it cannot touch you. You were the same before it happened. You will be the same after it ended. You were something before you were born. You will be that same thing after you die. In other words, when the body is born, it doesn't change you. When the body dies, it doesn't change you. Everything you know now, you will forget. Eventually in old age, all your learning will bite the dust when you just kind of forget, you know? You'll realize, oh, I, I'm not... As articulate as I was. With Ram Das, he suffered a stroke, completely taking away his ability to tell stories and be a charming, you know, raconteur of spirituality. Um, and it really upset him, you see. And ultimately, he was able to connect with his guru and realize, uh, no, 
I am not changed by the, the loss of my voice, the loss of my mind. You are not your mind, you see. The stroke gave him grace, fierce grace as he called it. You see, the more you cling to the upadi, the more painful it will be to rip you away from it. However, that will be grace. You see, might as well now in this lecture, start to ease your hold on the upadis. And then when your guru comes, when the one who will baptize you in fire comes, it will be much gentler. You see, when you meet your guru, uh, there will be less work for that guru to do insofar as you have met them halfway. Make no mistake, the guru must come and tear you from your upadis. Uh, but now itself, you know, loosen your hold. Loosen your hold. Okay. Finally, Vivarta gives you a sense of inviolable sanctity. Nothing can touch you. So let no one convey to you sinfulness. Let no one tell you you are somehow impure or harmed. You know, resist that with all your might. For you are purity uh, manifest, purity defined. Um, and nothing that happened to you on the level of the body or the mind can do anything to that. You see, because you are not the body nor the mind. All right. So that being the case, in closing, just a quick note on, actually, you know what? Yeah, quick note on Maya, quick note on Maya. Advaitins are not interested in telling you why Maya. And let me tell you why. <laughs> There's a very logical reason. So this is for Puja and for, um, I believe it was Guillermo, uh, as to the question of why we got hypnotized. Uh, no, Guillermo, it's not your awareness. It's you. You are the awareness. Awareness is not something you have. It's something you are. A soul is not something you have. A soul is something you are. How can you forget awareness? You are awareness. Who's the one doing the forgetting? <laughs> you see, it's you. You can't lose the you unless you're a Buddhist. <laughs> so yes, uh, Westifer will say, Guillermo, that's the point. You should forget your awareness. What the Buddhists would call Vijnana. <laughs> now, Guillermo, you're using the I to denote the psychological entity. Guillermo, the psychological being, is asking to be reminded of what Guillermo really is. You see. Guillermo, you are not Guillermo. <laughs> you do not need to be reminded. You are awareness. Every now and then, you uh, pretend to be Guillermo. And only, you know, Guillermo needs to be... Um, reminded but you don't need to be reminded you see so we're using the eye here in two different senses there's the eye of the psychological being and as we continue to meditate we start to maybe distance our other eye our bigger eye the bigger self what i think zen buddhists call the big mind from the small mind you know something like that okay uh, and this is why you can still practice devotion you can make the big eye the atman in a way the object of your devotion then it's god worshiping god through the medium of god you see the christ is within the ye sons of god you know yes beautiful anisha all right beautiful so yes why maya nobody knows and nobody cares yeah i, I know it sounds like an anti-intellectual response but it's not actually you cannot answer the question when did my ignorance begin when did I forget? Why did I forget? That's hard to answer. You see, uh, let's say you never learned any Sanskrit. And this is the example we tend to use. You were ignorant of Sanskrit. Then you went to a Sanskrit class. And in that class, you learned your A, A, U, U, R, R. You know, you learned your alphabet or whatever. Um, then you know your Sanskrit ignorance ended. I can show you where your ignorance ended. But if I ask you, when did your ignorance of Sanskrit begin, what answer can you give me? <laughs> you see, you were in perpetuity ignorant of Sanskrit until you went into the class for the first time. 
That's when your ignorance ended. But never will you be able to pinpoint when it began. You see? So nobody can answer for you, according to Advaita Vedanta, why Maya, or when Maya, or at what point Maya, because actually there's no Maya. You cannot explain something that never existed anyway. And we don't think Maya existed. Maya only appears to exist. So the question, why the mirage? Um, actually, you can't really answer that. You can't really answer why that shimmering appears to you an oasis. You see? It's just some shimmering, right? But why is it an oasis? I don't know. You just thought it was. And the moment you stop thinking it was, it stops being an oasis. And then trying to answer why it was an oasis doesn't really matter. Now it becomes an intellectual curiosity. And no longer are you the mind, so you're finished with all intellectual titillation anyway. You see? Um, Tantra gives you one extra answer. It says, okay, let's accept Atman or Brahman as Shiva, a kind of, you know, and, and by the way, when we, I, I'm a Shaivite, meaning when I practice devotion, I worship the god Shiva. Shiva is, for me, the personification of divinity. However, um, when a Shaiva talks about Shiva, they're not talking about that Shiva. They're talking about like a principle. It's, it, you should distinguish it. So Brahman and Shiva are principles. You see, they're formless. So don't conflate them. However, uh, Shiva, the, when we use the word Shiva technically, we're implying will. Brahman has no will. Awareness has no will. It's just aware. It doesn't want to be aware. It's not like it has desire to be aware. It's just aware. You know, it's just a fact that you are aware. Do you want to be aware? No, no two ways about it. You just are. <laughs> uh, and, and Shiva wants to be aware. So according to Tantrika, Shiva created the world. And then in order to experience that world, Shiva became you. But God is so good at playing pretend that even God forgot she was God. <laughs> so here you are. You forgot because you overdid it. <laughs> you made this world too damn delightful and you overdid it. But don't worry, you left hints. You knew that when you incarnated, you would forget. In fact, forgetting was the point. You only can enjoy the movie when you become invested in it, really. That's what Tantra says. You must really think you are the characters in the movie to enjoy the movie. However, if you only thought you were the characters in the movie, your enjoyment is limited. Yes, Tantra is, uh, all spiritual philosophies say the world can be enjoyed in some sense, but in a limited sense. Let's give you something better. So Tantra says the best is enjoying the world in it, but not of it. Just like Advaita says. However, according to Tantra, the reason you forgot, the reason for Maya, they don't even call it Maya, it's Shakti. The reason you fell into this stupor is because of Shiva's plan. It was part of the plan. It was all the game, you know, it was fun. It was fun to forget. It's fun to remember. Because it's fun is the reason Tantra will give you. Now you see, we're not like our um, uh, Abrahamic counterparts in which we're very serious about our religion. Sometimes we're very jovial. Uh, you'll notice with Eastern spirituality, there's a tremendous sense of humor. Uh, whereas sometimes in Western spirituality, not to dichotomize, there can be a lot of solemnity. You see, it can be very solemn. Whereas, yeah, Guillermo, it's fun to pay rent. And, you know, it's hard to appreciate that point. It's like, is it fun to be tortured by Pol Pot in the killing fields, you know, during the Khmer Rouge? According to the Tantrika, yes. Yeah, it is fun. Experience is fun. Raw sensation is fun. Suffering is worthwhile. Because ultimately, all suffering brings you back to God. All the Hitlers and Pol Pots and Stalins of the world, all of them are powerful correctional systems to hijack humanity's destruction program. When we see a Hitler or we see a Khmer Rouge, that's grace. 
Because that's us realizing how sick we are and we need to become better. (laughs) You see, when you're suffering, it teaches you to come to spirituality. If it wasn't for your suffering, you wouldn't have your spirituality. So ultimately, suffering is grace. According to the Tantrika, uh, all of this is for fun. Every part of it. It's all for delight. Mahasukha, they call it. And why not? You see? Um, you gravitate towards fun because you are God. God wants fun. Now learn to have fun in a less limited way. All right. I am 15 minutes over and I apologize. Mahasukha from Mahadukkha. Yes, beautiful. But this is the answer as to why Maya. So don't worry about Maya so much. Let Maya be Maya. Let the scientists study it ad infinitum. And if you are a scientist, definitely study it ad infinitum. But I speak to you now um, as a spiritual being, meaning as awareness. So I'm hoping not to speak to your body. I'm hoping not to speak to your mind. I'm hoping to speak to you. And to you, I say, um, let the body and mind do its thing. You simply resist nothing, be open to everything, and recognize it all as you appearing to you in the medium of you. And therein lies the peace of God. All right. Let's close now. We'll chant the four Mahavakyas, the great sentences of Advaita Vedanta. Pragyanam Brahma Aham Brahmasmi Ayam Atma Atman I am Matma Brahman. I am Matma Purusha. Om Tatvam Masi. Om Chidananda Rupa. Shivoham. Shivoham. Om Consciousness is the Absolute. Ong, I am that consciousness absolute. Ong, this very self is the Atman. This very self is the Brahman. This very self is pure spirit. Ong, that thou art. I am of the nature consciousness and bliss. I am Shiva. Shiva am I. Om Shanti 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 Om Peace Peace Peace